Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the Firefighter Wellness Program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com UFF to get started. Brad Schoenfeld is an associate professor of exercise science at Lehman College in Bronx, New York. He also currently serves as sports nutritionist for the New Jersey Devils hockey organization. He's published more than 250 peer-reviewed scientific papers on various exercise and sports nutrition related topics and authored the seminal textbook, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. He was the recipient of the 2016 Dwight D. Eisenhower Fitness Award as well as earning the 2018 National Strength and Conditioning Association Young Investigator of the Year Award. Brad, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today. It's my pleasure. So how do you determine whether or not something that's being promoted in the gym or by bodybuilders is worth proving or disproving? Ultimately, it depends upon the strength of the, uh, of the belief. You know, it's a difficult question to answer because something that has kind of tangential where, where people don't really put much stock in it. Uh, it's not worth studying because no one really cares. And also uh, things that are um, well established often aren't worth investigating because they've already been documented in research. So it really, you know, again, it's somewhat a subjective, but I would say it comes down to understanding what the current literature shows and then understanding uh, the relevance to training and, and people's beliefs in it. And you're able to discern between bro science that could be false and bro science that obviously works and doesn't necessarily need testing in a controlled environment. When you say I am, I mean, that's what research is for. And then depending upon the strength of the evidence that's produced in research, that can help to determine whether a so-called bro science belief is uh, factual or not. Now, let's talk about some insights from your recent meta-analysis comparing measures of strength and hypertrophy when carried out to muscle failure versus not to failure. You found no statistical differences between training to failure versus stopping short of failure for both strength and hypertrophy outcomes. What are the practical implications of these findings? Yeah, so that's true. Now, it's important to realize that uh, statistical significance does not mean there might not be a benefit or detriment in certain cases. Uh, so you have to at least get past, we use statistical significance as a measure of the probability of a finding, but just because something, first of all, might not be probable doesn't necessarily mean there might not be practical meaningfulness to it. And just because you might find statistical significance does not necessarily mean that there uh, is a practical meaningfulness to it. So what I would say, trying to put the findings together from a practical standpoint. Um, I would say for most, for, certainly for, well, let's talk strength first. From a strength standpoint, really does not seem to be a benefit to going to muscle failure. And there potentially could be a, a detriment to it. Uh, so I, I would say that for those who are purely looking for strength gains uh, and, and outside of the hypertrophy aspect, because there's also a benefit to um, having some hypertrophy training for strength. But in the context of the strength component of a, hyper, of a, uh, a strength training component of a uh, strength training program, uh, I, I would say there probably is not a, uh, 
a benefit to it and then there could be a detriment. So I, I don't think there's a reason to do it. Now, from a hypertrophy standpoint, it's somewhat interesting. So we did find that on a, uh, when volume was not equated, uh, so meaning that, um, so one of the issues when you train to failure, you're gonna end up not being able on the subsequent sets to failure to get as to use as much weight. So you're gonna use ultimately less weight, meaning that you'll be training with less volume load. So when uh, the volume load was less for the uh, training the failure group, uh, there was no benefit. But when you equated it by performing more sets to equate the volume load, there actually did seem to be a mild benefit to it. Now, I, here's what I would say, that there, there's so many gaps in the literature at this point that it's, um, I certainly don't think we can come to the conclusion yet that there's no benefit to training to failure uh, for hypertrophy. I, I would say that probably if there is a benefit, it doesn't make that much of a difference. So it's not gonna be a large benefit. Um, but for those who are looking to maximize their hypertrophic gains, I do think uh, there potentially is a benefit. Uh, we don't have uh, good evidence. There's again, too many gaps, but let's say you're getting closer to your genetic ceiling. I think there's reason to believe that there, uh, for those who are, let's say high level bodybuilders, there might be a benefit to uh, carrying out some sets to failure. Part of the issue is, is that none of the studies to date have looked at uh, varying the programs to failure. So basically all the studies have looked at either every set to failure versus no sets to failure. Mm. And that doesn't have to be the way it is. So you can perform the last set to failure. You can perform the last two sets to failure. If you're not performing it to failure, sets to failure, what level of uh, proximity to failure are you using? Are you using one set short of failure, two sets short of fail failure? Again, we really don't have good evidence to this effect. So overall, I would say that uh, we just need more evidence. And I think there is at least the possibility, and I think there's some evidence pointing to the uh, fact that you might be able to um, maximize hypertrophy by performing at least some sets to failure. And are all exercises created equal when it comes to failure training, or does the type of exercise matter? It's another excellent point. And uh, no, the the basically the unequivocal answer is no, uh, they are not equated uh, equal. And yeah, if you're doing, let's say a set of squats to failure versus a set of leg extensions to failure, they promote substantially different uh, taxations on the neuromuscular system. So if you're doing a lot of sets to squats to failure, you can get crushed uh, you know, if you're doing that repeatedly. Whereas if you're doing leg extensions, uh, extensions to failure, uh, you're going to recover. You, your neuromuscular system is nowhere near as taxed and you'll have greater recovery. So uh, again, that is another, I think, very important point to take into account. So a lot of nuances to this uh, topic. So maybe then failure should be, or failure training should be prioritized in single joint movements for less stress on the neuromuscular system. If it's going to be applied, that's certainly uh, what I would say. Now, of course, that's more specific to hypertrophy type training in general, when we're looking at overall maximal strength training, uh, there would be a, uh, um, you tend to want to use more multi-joint, uh, structural multi-joint exercises. 
So yeah, but I, I would certainly say that uh, if failure training is going to be employed, uh, my general suggestion is to prioritize that in those exercises that would be uh, less complex and generally that involve uh, single joints and, and machines as well. And so if you're looking to gain muscle size with light weights, do you need to push it to failure or at least somewhere close, but with heavier weights, that doesn't seem to matter. It, that, that does seem to be uh, true as well, that uh, there seems to be a greater need at least to push closer to failure with uh, lighter loads, um, especially when we're talking very heavy loads, let's say five rep, uh, five RM sets, uh, stopping a couple reps short doesn't seem to have much uh, effect on that five, six reps. But uh, when you're doing, a, let's say a light load set 20 RM, uh, it seems that you're gonna need to get close if not to full failure to maximize the hypertrophic response. Does failure training increase recovery time between sessions? It does. And, and that's part of the issue with um, training to failure. Again, uh, a topic that we need better research on, but uh, part of that's going to depend upon how much failure you're using. So if you're training every set to failure, there's going to be a greater taxation on the neuromuscular system and likely uh, impair your ability to recover well uh, over, the, over a period of at least a couple of days to get back to training. So you're going to have to structure your training differently if you're going to choose to employ more, let's say, multi-joint exercises with more sets to failure whereas that would seem to be less of an issue with uh, your single joint sets. And if only one, let's say if only the last set was to failure, probably not gonna have uh, as much of an effect on your recovery. So these are nuanced topics. Mm -hmm. And that's why I mentioned that when we look at research, uh, we can, as we did produce a meta-analysis, but you really have to look beyond just the results of that meta-analysis, in, in, at least in many cases, to get a true understanding of the practical implications. Failure training on your last set of an exercise, you do consider that worth doing? Again, depends on what your goal is. But I think for, um, for those who want to maximize hypertrophy, particularly those who are more advanced in their training, yes, I think there is a benefit to including some sets to failure. And when that is... Um, when you do that, I generally recommend the last set to failure and generally with a focus on the uh, single joint, the less complex exercises. Any other strategies to employ failure training in a program without bringing about markers of overtraining that could negatively impact muscle building capacity? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that generally that I'm an advocate of, and this is not, uh, certainly there's no good research on it, just more anecdotally, and it has, I think, at least support from a, uh, at least a logical basis standpoint, uh, is to periodize uh, training to failure. Again, there's there's nothing that says that every workout you need to just do the last set to failure, two sets or three sets or whatever. So I, I think trying to focus on using failure more in an overreaching phase where you're structuring your training. I'm a believer in um, a periodized, at least when we talk about periodization, it's probably a discussion for another uh, day. But it's uh, basically structured planning of, of your exercise program and, and using cycles where you're going to have cer certain cycles where there is less, um, less use of failure and 
culminating in a, let's say, in a, a functional overreaching cycle where there's a greater use of failure training. What impact did this study have on your training, if anything at all? I mean, it just kind of reinforced uh, some of the beliefs that I had been becoming more in tune with. I, I will say that my overall view of failure training has changed quite drastically over time. Uh, but I, I've just been so aware of the research that I kind of anticipated that it would be somewhere in this, in the ballpark of what we found. There were some mild surprises, but not to the extent that it really changed my, my view on it. But I will say that I grew up in the bro uh, bodybuilding era uh, where I believed that every set needed to be taken to failure and beyond using uh, four straps and uh, all sorts of other advanced training techniques that involved uh, going to failure. And uh, my, as we've just talked about, my views have changed quite drastically where I've become much more conservative in my use of uh, failure training, largely because of the uh, research that's been uh, done over time. So while failure is required for spiritual growth, it is not necessarily required for muscle growth. Are there any other topics in the field of exercise that are as controversial as training to failure? Uh, you know, controversy, I think, is subjective, but I mean, there's many. There's uh, loading, most of the, or many of the manipulation strategies. So exercise selection tends to be uh, controversial, at least aspects of it, training volume, training load. Uh, frequency has been all over the place as far as some people's beliefs. So I think there's a lot of controversial topics depending on who you ask. Let's talk about the importance of the mind-muscle connection or the term that I really love, which is the internal focus of attention when training. You investigated whether adopting a mind-muscle connection during training actually had a beneficial effect on muscle growth. And what were your findings? Yeah, that study was carried out a couple of years ago. And um what we found was that, so we had two groups, just to give a uh, quick summation, two groups, one group trained with a internal focus, which is a mind muscle connection. Basically we had, there was supervised training and the uh, research assistant who was training each subject would say, uh, who was training. So for the internal focus group, they would say, squeeze the muscle and every rep that was performed, they just reinforce, squeeze the muscle, squeeze the muscle. And on the uh, external focus, which is basically a, uh, a non-mind muscle where you're, you're focusing on the external environment, on the lift itself, uh, the instruction was just get the weight up, get the weight up. So there was no focus on the muscle. It was just a function of moving the load. And uh, what we found, it was, it was an eight-week study. We looked at uh, biceps curls and uh, leg extensions, so two single joint movements that allowed for a greater ability for an internal focus. Uh, and we found that for the biceps uh, growth, the um, muscle thickness of the biceps, there was a substantial uh, benefit to an internal focus. Alternatively, for the quadriceps, for the leg extension and the quadriceps, there was basically no differences in hypertrophy. So it was interesting. And what we at least our working theory as to what might explain these discrepancies is that um, most subjects in our exit interv uh, interviews claim that they had an easier time focusing on squeezing the muscle in the biceps than they did in the legs. And it kind of makes sense. 
because your upper body, your, your arms in, in particular, uh, you utilize it for fine motor skills. So for picking up things, for picking up a cup or a, a package, uh, sometimes a delicate package. And that involves more thinking about what you're doing. Whereas your lower body musculature, you're doing things that are more gross movement patterns like running or walking where you're not thinking about using those, the musculature for those purposes. So at least conceptually, we think that it might be due to a greater ability for the subjects to uh, employ a mind-muscle focus in the upper body than the lower body. And perhaps over time, if they had been more in tuned with uh, the mind-muscle connection for the lower body, maybe there would be better effects and that needs to be studied. Not necessarily that the mind-muscle connection is more important for the upper extremities than lower, but it's just easier to focus on them. Yeah, that's a working theory, as I said. So we, we didn't do any mechanistic research to know, could it be possible that it's more uh, important for the upper body for some reason? I guess I can't think of a, you'd have to think of a logical basis to further that hypothesis. I just can't think of a logical basis why the musculature of the, of the quadriceps would be different in that respect than the arms and the biceps. So uh, we can only speculate at this point, and that's why we need more research. And when doing this, should we worry about tempo or simply focus on the muscle being trained? Yeah, my so excellent question. Uh, generally, I don't think uh, focusing on tempo is really relevant, provided you're employing the mind muscle focus, uh, my, uh, the mind muscle connection. I, it, to me, it takes care of itself. You're not going to be able to employ a good mind-muscle connection if you're lifting extremely quick ballistically. So to, to a certain extent, uh, as long as you're lifting the weight under control where the muscle is doing the work and focused in that effect, I, I don't really see how tempo should enter into the equation. And one of the underrated benefits of this mind-muscle connection is just how meditative it is. Yeah, I, I think uh, lifting can be med meditative, I think is a interesting word there. But I think lifting itself can have uh, quote unquote meditative effects if you uh, if you're using a focus. So again, it's it's thinking within which has a basis for in meditation. Mm -hmm. And for volume, if our goal is to maximize muscle development, does high intensity training do the trick or do we need a higher training volume? I think there's quite compelling evidence at this point that single set training is suboptimal if the goal is to maximize growth. Now, here's what I will say, that even a single set, you're going to get the majority of your gains with a really low volume training approach. How low volume? That's somewhat of a relative term. Uh, but let's say your hit type uh, training, your high intensity training, single set to failure, Arthur Jones style, doing that, let's say three days a week, uh, you're going to get a majority of gains. I think that's pretty well established, but uh, there is a dose response relationship. The question is, how much volume do you need to do? And um, I think the evidence is becoming quite clear that that is very um, specific to the individual, that uh, different we uh, individuals have different needs as far as volume goes. And we see this all the time in training or just in general, but I think in volume, it seems to be even more pronounced where some people seem to make uh, quite compelling, qu quite good gains with low volume uh, work. 
quote unquote low volume, because again, low volume is an ambiguous term and so is high volume. And uh, higher volumes are needed by others. And uh, I, again, I think that we shouldn't be talking about these types of things on an absolute basis because you don't have to just do all high volume all the time or all low volume all the time. You can integrate those types of concepts into a periodized training approach where some somewhat periods of or periods of somewhat lower volume are interspersed with periods of somewhat higher volume to achieve your optimal gains. And I think that at least has a again a good logical basis in the to the extent that um, training with high volumes all the time will ultimately lead to overtraining, depending again upon how high the volumes are, so that the body is very resilient, it can recover uh, and, and thrive in an environment where it is. Uh, where a high level of stress is imposed upon it, such as with a high volume training approach. But if you keep doing that, uh, that's if you keep imposing that stressor, the very high levels of stress over time, it's going to break down. So it again, at least gives credence to the theory that if you have some periods of lower stressors, lower volumes, and then intersperse that with some periods of higher stressors, higher volumes, that that can maximize your response without uh, increasing the prospect of overtraining. Yeah. I like what you said. I read the astute fitness pro will take the current research into account and then use his or her expertise to customize the program prescription, taking into account the potential benefit balanced against the time commitment involved. That's the essence of an evidence-based approach. And that's correct. So research will never tell you what to do. Research uh, provides guidelines. It gets you into a ballpark and then it is up to the expertise of the individual in combination, either if, if they're training him or herself uh, with his or her own uh, needs and abilities, or if you're training someone else, the uh, needs and abilities of, of whoever it is you're working with to optimize a specific uh, program for that person. And some of the reasons why you are not gaining muscle, what happens if you only weight train within the same rep ranges and loading patterns? I think you that there is uh, some some evidence that training across a spectrum of repetition ranges can help to maximize hypertrophy. Uh, so is that concrete? No. Is the research compelling? No. But I think there is some evidence that leads to speculation that that is the case. And I, I certainly do recommend uh, training across, at least having some lower volume, uh, a lower, rep, uh, lower repetition training, so heavy load, lower reps with some uh, higher reps, lighter loads. So kind of focusing on a mid range of uh, six to 12 or 15 RM, and then having some, let's say three to five uh, RMs uh, interspersed with some 20 RM or so, I, I think uh, is kind of the best strategy to cover. If nothing else, it's certainly not gonna have a detriment. And there is some evidence that that can help to maximize the growth. If you're just doing, let's say 10 RM all the time, I think uh, there's at least a decent body of evidence that you might be missing out, leaving some gains on the table. So if my goal is to maximize growth, I should alternate between a moderate rep range of about six to 12 reps per set with some of our sets carried out in the lower rep range of one to five reps. And some, you're correct. And I would also say some in the higher rep range uh, let's say 20 to 25 RM or even 30 RM, somewhere in the more metabolic range uh, 
might have benefits. And there's several, I can provide several theories. Number one, even without um, fiber type specific effects, so there could be differences in how uh, rep ranges target the individual fibers. Uh, that, that is an equivocal theory. So uh, actually research that we just carried out uh, not too long ago seemed to dis disprove that theory, but there's still a lot, we're still a long way from knowing that. But I would say even without that, training with the heavier loads helps you to get stronger in your moderate rep ranges and thus use heavier loads, which can allow you to have uh, more mechanical tension in your lifts. And training with lighter loads, let's say you're 20 to 30, can at least conceivably increase your lactate threshold, which can allow you to get some more reps at a given rep range in your moderate rep training, and thus again, increase the mechanical tension that's promoted. So at least from a logical basis, uh, they're, they're, when something doesn't seem to have a downside and has a potential upside, I say it's a good cost benefit and should be employed. And for the time in between, is three minutes superior to one minute interset rest periods for the majority of hypertrophy measures? It depends. Uh, first of all, uh, we did a study looking at that and it showed that three minutes uh, seemed to promote, have greater hypertrophic benefits than one minute. But again, there are some caveats to these findings. So if you look into it, the volume was not equate, the volume, so the set volume was equated, but volume load wasn't. So you're able to get more work done more quickly with the less, uh, when the, with shorter rest. So if you could have done more, conceivably, you could have packed more exercise into that session, increased the volume load. And we actually have another study that was published uh, fairly recently that showed that if you made up the additional uh, set, uh, the additional volume load by performing more sets, uh, with the uh, shorter rest intervals, you actually equated the hypertrophy that was done. So I think it depends. And then I think kind of to the point of the failure training, similarly, you have to look at uh, multi-joint versus single joint. And it does seem that longer rest might be more appropriate with uh, your multi-joint exercises, whereas your single joint, you recover from more quickly. So there's not a, as big a loss in, uh, in the volume load and the number of reps you can carry out. And thus, at least conceivably, a reason why uh, there's less reason to uh, to worry about your rep range, and, and you could get out quicker. I'd also say, and, and this again is somewhat speculative, that uh, three minutes is just kind of a number, and that perhaps two minutes would be a just as good as three minutes. But we ha we don't have enough evidence yet to really make that determination. And three minutes does seem like a lifetime when you're just sitting there in the gym. It does. You know, that is generally speaking, if you're a power lifter, you're going to want to take that long and it depends how winded you are. I think, um, again, there'll be an individual factor as to your, uh, recovery ability between sets. I think that uh, people who get used to training with short rest develop an affinity for it. So those are all things that I think need more research. If my goal is to put on muscle, will combining resistance exercise and aerobics interfere with the processes that drive anabolism? It could. Uh, so again, an interesting, some interesting nuances. Generally speaking, uh, if you're a newbie, there actually can be a beneficial effect of doing aerobic training because at least conceivably from a, log a logical standpoint, 
if you haven't been doing anything, then the greater stimulus, the just doing more uh, will enhance your results. Now with, with more advanced trainees, uh, particularly if you're a high level bodybuilder, uh, there does seem to be a tipping point. So here's where I'd say it's going to depend. And, and almost every answer I will give you as I guess you've kind of seen, or is it, it depends because there's just so many factors that enter into the equation here, but how much volume are you doing resistance wise? How much volume are you doing uh, aerobic wise? What is the intensity of the aerobic exercise and the failure training that you're doing and the uh, resistance training. So lots of things to unpack there. Uh, but certainly that uh, beyond a certain point, there's going to be an interference effect and, and that can bring about, not only a reduction in gains per se, but an overtrained effect that's gonna have negative effects on your health and your injury, potential, uh, potential for injury, as well as your ability to recover from illness. Uh, so it can suppress your immune system. Uh, I think the take home here is you have to be more careful or in the side of caution. And uh, if the goal is to maximize growth, Doing some aerobic training, I think, has some benefits um, to, to a hypertrophy routine in that it can help to enhance blood flow and uh, capillary density, which can help to exchange nutrients and, and facilitate recovery. But you need to be judicious with your uh, performance. And, and that is, again, there's no uh, one-size-fits-all approach. It's going to be dependent on a lot of things, including the individual. If we want to burn fat and gain strength at the same time, should we consider using MRT or what you call metabolic resistance training? Yeah, that's another topic where my uh, thoughts have changed over the years. And well, I, again, I, I would depend upon where you're going. I, I don't think that that's um, not, not for the reasons that I, at least I had thought, but I certainly think that the goal would be you want to include resistance training. Now it's going to be difficult to accomplish what's called recomposition, where you um, gain muscle while losing fat. It is achievable, but as you start getting lower and lower in body fat uh, and you get more and more experienced, it becomes progressively difficult to the point, at some point uh, you'd basically, if the goal is to maximize muscle, you have to focus on that. But certainly uh, including resistance training is essential in a uh, fat loss strategy to, if nothing else, to preserve muscle tissue, uh, if not eke out at least some gains. And I know it's impossible to say how much cardio is too much, but I read an article where you said three days a week of 20 to 30 minute bouts of cardio is a good general guideline. Is that right? That's a good general guideline, but it's, uh, it's very malleable. It's, uh, that's something that, as I said, will depend on the individual. That's a starting point that I'd, I'd say, but certainly not a hard a rule, a hard rule of thumb. Now, I used to think that when I would wake up and I would go for a long fasted walk that I was burning more fat. Is that bullshit? To say, is it bullshit? It's, uh, it's certainly not going to make a big difference. I, I can't say there, there's no uh, definitive evidence that it has zero benefit, but I think the evidence is quite compelling that if it does have any benefits, uh, which there, there's very little evidence that it does have a benefit. Uh, it's hard to disprove a, a negative, uh, at least in this type of case. But uh, the evidence that we have does not show a benefit. Um, now, 
it also doesn't really show a negative effect. But the speculation which with which it was based on had uh, a lot of caveats to it. And basically, it the where it does conceivably uh, show a benefit is if you're doing like marathon type training, where if you're doing uh, workouts, uh, uh, cardio workouts that are over 90 minutes at a uh, low intensity of effort. Uh, so let's say at a uh, under your lactate threshold, so slow jogging or walking for 90 plus minutes. And generally, if you're less trained, the more well-trained you are and, uh, and the shorter the bouts are and the higher the intensity, the more irrelevant it becomes. And the higher intensity is important for firefighters who need to be prepared for intense environments. What are your thoughts on integrating high intensity interval training into one's fitness program? Yeah, so uh, I think high intensity interval training is a uh, viable strategy, whether you should use it or not, again, will depend on the individual. It's not, I, I would not say everyone has to use it or everyone shouldn't use it. It would be depending on the situation. So if the goal is fat burning, it's an effective fat burning strategy, but it's not any more effective than uh, doing at least the evidence that we have, um, moderate intensity continuous training. Now it's, here's the thing, it can accomplish the task in shorter amounts of time, but it involves more discomfort. So are you willing to put in the discomfort to achieve the, or, or to have the shorter bouts? Sure. If your goal as you start talking about is athletics or um, with firefighters, police officers, um, military personnel, boxers, or um, certainly UFC, where there's more uh, anaerobic uh, threshold, you know, when you really need high levels of anaerobic fitness, uh, I think that uh, that it's very beneficial. So it's these are questions that uh, I know everyone wants cookie cutter answers or, or likes cookie cutter answers, but there's no one size fits all. And then is it misleading to refer to exercise as either functional or non-functional because functional transfer from training exists on a continuum? I see you've been uh, following my social media posts. Mm -hmm. um, most definitely. I, I, that has been a hobby horse of mine. The, the term functional training, number one, it's, it's so ambiguous that because functional to one person is not necessarily functional to another. Functional is a, it comes down to what a, a given person needs to do in their day. As you mentioned, a firefighter is gonna have much greater functional, much different functional needs than let's say a stockbroker would. And a farmer would have different functional needs than a, an insurance salesman. Uh, so these are terms, they're buzzword terms that make good uh, clickbait um, articles, uh, titles, but uh, functional is up to the individual. And what I would say is that for the most part, you're gonna get mo most of your functional benefits just by doing a standard resistance training routine. So. For most functional tasks of everyday living, picking up packages, um, moving furniture, et cetera, a weight training routine, a general overall weight training routine, that's a bodybuilding style training, is going to allow you to do the, accomplish that just as well as any of the so-called canned functional routines. 
And then if you have specific functional needs above and beyond uh, what might be required, that, then you need to perform, uh, that has to be specific to the individual. That's where your principle of specificity will come in. And the training program needs to be tailored to those individual needs. Workouts that are transferable into your life might not be transferable into my day-to-day -day life. Very well said. Why are repeated cycles of bulking and cutting not a smart nutritional strategy? So there is a uh, theory, it's a working theory that I think has some fairly good support that when you continually um, gain weight and then lose a lot of weight, the body uh, will, because you end up sacrificing lean mass, to regain that lean mass, the body uh, undergoes what's called fat overshooting. And there, at least, uh, at least theoretically, it uh, then becomes more difficult. You have to employ greater um, restrictions to avoid the regain of, of fat on the rebound. So um, it's, uh, it's also gonna take you longer. I, I think a clean bulk, is just a better strategy to uh, to achieve um, a bodybuilding type physique, if you will, than a bulk well, the old school mass mass and cut cycles. I think bodybuilders kind of had this whole diet and exercise thing figured out a long time ago. Yeah, some of them. Now I must say that there still are uh, there's some pro bodybuilders who who promote that they do the old school uh, massive cutting and uh, bulking cycles, but I, I think you're right. I think uh, for the most part, uh, bodybuilders were people who were doing some certain things for a living uh, and are extremely uh, passionate and devoted to it, figure things out. And that, that's why a lot of the, a lot of the bro science uh, beliefs, what we call bro science have been born out in the literature that uh, we call bro science because they have not necessarily been shown, not necessarily because they've been disproven. Do you focus on protein to energy ratios or have a target for protein? Yeah, a general target for protein is, uh, and this is of course with people who are resistance training, and I think that everyone should be resistance training. So that's kind of a redundancy. But uh, yeah, my uh, the general rule of thumb, and this has been borne out by a compelling body of literature is that uh, you should consume roughly between 1.6, 1.7 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. There, there might be uh, some benefit to bodybuilders who are, uh, if you're, a, let's say, a high-level bodybuilder in a cutting phase and doing higher volumes where you might need to go a little bit higher. Uh, but generally, that's the the range that's been fairly well documented in the literature, somewhere between say 1.7 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. And then I'm just curious, I don't know if you take them, but if you do, what do your rest days look like? No, I, I mean, I like to go for walks. So, uh, you know, I, I do, I'm a, I'm a walker. Uh, so uh, now could, could that be impeding my gains at this point? It might, but I'm not uh, stepping on a bodybuilding stage. So um yeah, I, I like to uh, I like to walk. Um, I don't do anything now. Now again, that there is, as I said, beneficial effects to recovery, to uh, light um, aerobic exercise. I, I would say that uh, could there be benefits to sauna? Uh, yes, there is some evidence that uh, heating uh, has those effects. 
again, I, I don't uh, employ them at this point just because uh, it's eking out every last morsel of muscle is not, I just have so many things going on that there's basically there's opportunity cost. So if to employ these techniques, it takes time out of my day where I'm doing other things and my, my days are quite packed with other, uh, with other endeavors. But if I was gonna step on the bodybuilding stage, I would uh, employ uh, some localized heat at least because there does seem to be at least a potential benefit to it without any negatives. Following you on Instagram, it seems like the jury is still out on cold immersion. So when you say the jury is still out, I think it, the jury is in that uh, it's not something I would recommend if your goal is to maximize muscle gains. Now, could there be uses for it? Yes, if you're not, if you're willing to potentially sacrifice gains or let's say that you are, now, again, when we're talking about this, we're talking about using it on a regular basis. If you hop in a, uh, an ice bath one time because you're feeling really sore, it's not going to, you know, it's not, it's not like your gains are, you're going to go all catabolic and you're not going to lose all your gains. But if you employ it consistently, it seems a poor strategy because it does uh, suppress anabolism over time. But again, it would depend on what you're doing. If you're a football player who's uh, every week you're getting beat up or a hockey player, let's say, uh, could there be benefit to it? You're not concerned about maximizing muscle. Yeah. So there are nuances that I think we need to look at. But the evidence we have at this point would suggest that cold uh, would diminish, would ha have a detrimental effect on hypertrophy. And at least there's the potential for heat to have a positive effect. All right, Brad, if you'd be so kind as to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now? Vast majority of my reading, uh, and at least at this point, I, I occasionally will read textbooks uh, when, when a good textbook comes along, but uh, I just read a ton of research articles. Um, so right now I, I have a folder of several hundred research articles that I'm just, you ask me why I don't uh, do some certain things. I'm just so behind on, I have so much going on that I'm behind on my things that I really need to get to. And um, uh, literally I have probably 200 research papers that I'm wading through. And I, I do try, uh, like I, I'll get uh, on a weekend and I'll get to go through, let's say an eight hour period where I'll read through 20 or 30 studies. So yeah, it's, it's mostly uh, peer reviewed research from research journals. And your books aside, what would you consider your muscle building Bible? If you're asking another person's book, I, I don't have one. I think there's a lot of good ones uh, out there. Uh, my colleague, uh, Mike Israetel has a very good book. Uh, and excuse me that I don't recall the names uh, at this point, but uh, Mike Israetel and Eric Helms are two colleagues of mine that have good books on, on the topic. Uh, I think Eric's is the muscle pyramid, muscle and strength pyramid. But anyway, but uh, Mike's, uh, is it's through his Renaissance periodization and they have very good books. But when you say, I, again, I have uh, formulated my own thoughts and, and uh, theories based upon my knowledge of the literature and my practical expertise, which I have uh, penned into a book myself. So if you're asking me my own Bible, it is my Bible because that's what I, it's not that I, uh, I follow my own advice because that's what I impart. Hell yeah. And then last question, if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? There's just so many, but I, I would, if I had to choose one, and that's a really difficult choice, 
probably Abe Lincoln uh, in the U.S. He was just such a monumental figure and uh, obviously just uh, completely changed the course of history. Without him, uh, we'd be living in a very different America. Not that there's not other people that have changed history, but I I think he was just a special individual and uh, civil rights issues, just uh, someone I, I think would be fascinating to learn from. Awesome, Brad. If people want to find you, they can go to lookgreatnaked.com. You're on YouTube at Look Great Naked for Life and Twitter at Brad Schoenfeld. I'll have links to your books in the show notes. Is there anywhere else that you want people to go to connect with you? Uh, no, they can search for me, like you said, on social media. I have a very large social media presence and my textbook, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, as you were talking about, if someone wants to pick up a book, uh, shameless plug. Yes, I would highly recommend it. It's, and it is, by the way, it's a serious textbook. So it is not light reading. If uh, you're interested just in a light reading book, that is definitely not the book for you. Perfect. All right, Brad, this was so much fun, man. Thank you. My pleasure, Nick. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakova.